spoken to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Howard Carter and the treasure of Tutankhamun's tomb. Now let's continue with our story about Howard Carter. News of the spectacular discovery spread first throughout Egypt, as well as national apprehension that the tomb's treasure would be relocated internationally. To demonstrate his sincerity and desire to work cooperatively with Egyptian officials, Carter agreed to an official reopening of the antechamber on November 29, 1922. Among the guests were Lord Allenby, the Egyptian High Commissioner, various Egyptian officials, and a journalist of the London Times. But Carter deliberately omitted Pierre Lacau, Maspero's replacement as the Egyptian head of antiquities. The two men already had a tense relationship over various aspects of Carnarvon's concession, most notably Lacau's insistence that any intact tomb's contents belonged exclusively to the Egyptian Antiquities Department. Already having installed a massive steel gate bound with padlocked chains, Carter then left the sealed tomb bound for Cairo. By now the world press, galvanized by the story, had transformed him and Carnarvon into global celebrities. But, unlike other archaeologists who might have been influenced by this attention and impatiently removed the tomb's contents in haste, Carter remained intent on a thorough and detailed process that painstakingly documented and attempted to preserve the ancient contents, many of the tomb's objects, especially cloth, incredibly atmospherically sensitive and fragile. He also understood that he could not handle this process alone. Upon receiving a congratulatory wire from the head of the Egyptian collection at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City, Carter requested the services of the museum's Harry Burton, a renowned art photographer, a request that was granted. Various other Metropolitan-affiliated individuals, already involved in other Egyptian excavations, also joined the team, including Arthur Mace, who would co-author Carter's account of the discovery. The group also had its own chemist, Alfred Lucas, typical of Carter's desire to take advantage of access to uniquely preserved samples of both an Egyptian mummy and intact objects of art. Carter's first efforts were focused on photographing and cataloging the contents of the antechamber. He established a process by which Burton photographed objects where they were discovered. Subsequently, numbered white cards were placed next to the same items and photographed again. The items were then removed to a temporary studio in another tomb where they were examined, chemically treated by Lucas, and then additionally photographed by Burton, utilizing the glass plate negative technology of the 20s. 
Two members of the Metropolitan team, architects by trade, were also developing a floor plan, which also documented the exact location of the contents of the tomb. The objects were then painstakingly wrapped in cotton and calico cloth, placed in crates, and pushed by hand on Carter's previously developed makeshift railway to the Nile River and a barge destined for Cairo and the Egyptian Museum of Antiquities. All of this was accomplished in seven weeks, despite the extreme conditions of the Egyptian desert, constant pestering by the world press, and a bevy of tourists who flocked to the scene to get a glimpse of this remarkable process. Simultaneously, Lord Carnarvon initiated an unfortunate negotiation that alienated not only the Egyptian government, but the local population as well. Egypt in the 20s was still a British colony, but a fervent nationalist movement was already extant, and Tutankhamun's tomb was only one of the many politically sensitive issues when Carnarvon agreed in January of 1923 to grant exclusive journalistic rights to the Times of London for information and access to the tomb itself. The discovery of the tomb was a media sensation, and this exclusivity sent howls of outrage throughout the native political and social hierarchy of the country, just another example of arrogant colonialism. That many of the Egyptian archaeological establishment, including the head of the Antiquities Commission, were French, added to the animosity towards Carter and Carnarvon. The inevitable confrontation between Pierre Lacau and Carter occurred when it was proclaimed that as the tomb was discovered intact, all of its contents were the property of the Antiquities Service, and that the holders of the concession were entitled to nothing. This may have explained why Carter kept emphasizing that the tomb had been robbed, and that the antechamber especially contained broken items and signs that smaller objects were previously stolen. A tomb that was not quote, intact, unquote, would allow the concession holders to retain a percentage of any contents. Just as Carter and Carnarvon were mulling over the possibility of taking legal action, another calamity overtook the excavation. The Lord's health was not particularly good to begin with. That was the reason he initially got involved with Egyptology. But, after heading to the resort town of Aswan, he supposedly, while shaving, lanced a mosquito bite on his cheek, which became infected. That led to pneumonia, which deteriorated until Carnarvon was relocated to Cairo, where he died on April 5, 1923. The world press, which was already intensely covering any scrap of news related to Tutankhamun's tomb, went absolutely wild with proclamations of a curse that King Tut would visit upon anyone who disturbed his remains. Such an admonition supposedly appeared on the plaster door of the tomb, a completely fatuous urban legend that persists to this day. Even health experts theorized that the tomb contained toxins that might have killed the Lord, but this was a man who was already losing his teeth in the last months of his life. Most likely, he was already suffering from some undiagnosed chronic illness before he ever set foot in the tomb. Nevertheless, Carnarvon's death deprived Carter of both the political clout and diplomatic personality of his partner. Now it was merely Howard Carter, with his stubborn outlook and unpleasant demeanor, to navigate the tricky waters of high-profile excavation in a foreign and hostile environment. Carter did attempt to patch things up with an official discovery of the burial chamber on February 16, 1923. 
This event, which involved opening the sealed sarcophagus of the pharaoh, included Pierre Lacau and various other Egyptian officials. But it also included only one member of the press, from the Times of London, which did little to diffuse the rampant hostility. After Carnarvon's death and the onset of summer, Carter returned to England to persuade Lady Carnarvon to renew the official concession to continue excavation. The Times exclusive was also renewed, and when demands from both Egyptian nationalists and the world media to end this monopoly intensified, Carter responded with what he thought was the nifty gambit of making the Times correspondent an official member of the team. Obviously, this appointment would perpetuate unique access to immediate information. Calls to allow personal briefings by Carter to at least the Egyptian press were ignored. At the center of this imbroglio, Carter continued his meticulous removal of objects from the tomb. His major focus on the engineering required to actually lift the immensely heavy sarcophagus and its remarkable contents out of the burial chamber. But in early 1924, Carter's imperious outlook collided directly with political reality. In February, the actual lid covering the sarcophagus was opened, a complicated process. For the first time, after the removal of a shroud, the outer seven-foot-long golden coffin of Tutankhamun was revealed. This sight was so mesmerizing, Carter decided that the wives of the excavation team should be treated to a visit allowing them to view the remarkable bejeweled and decorated wooden exterior case that surrounded Tutankhamun's mummified body. This despite Carter's refusal to allow any access to the press or public. When this came to the attention of the Egyptian government's Minister of Public Works, he officially canceled the event. Carter responded by chaining the entrance to the tomb, after literally leaving the sarcophagus lid hanging by ropes in the burial chamber's interior. He then posted the following message in the lobby of Luxor's most prestigious hotel, the Winter Palace. Quote, Owing to the impossible restrictions and discourtesies of the Egyptian Public Works Department and its antiquities service, all my collaborators, as a protest, have refused to work any further upon their scientific investigations in the tomb. Unquote. This angry response was actually a very bad idea. The Egyptian government and Lacau officially canceled the concession and declared that they would excavate the tomb themselves. Carter left Egypt and assembled a speaking tour, crisscrossing the United States through the spring and summer of 1924. The public response was overwhelming, with halls in various cities of the Northeast and Midwest jammed to capacity. In Detroit, Henry Ford was in attendance, and in Washington, D.C., Carter privately updated President Calvin Coolidge, who requested a private lecture. The archaeologist concluded his American tour with an honorary degree from Yale University on June 18, 1924. Speaking engagements throughout Great Britain were arranged upon Carter's return, also a dazzling success. Howard Carter was now a world-famous celebrity. But back in Egypt, more controversy swirled around the tomb. When Egyptian authorities examined the storage and workshop areas that Carter and his team utilized, they found a painted wooden bust of Tutankhamun emerging from a lotus blossom. This pricelessly unique object was packed in a crate and had all of the appearances of potential removal from the country. 
although the location and condition of the bust was explained away as not yet fully processed and registered, luckily for Carter, any potential embarrassment and fallout was minimized when the British commander-in-chief of the Egyptian army, Sir Lee Stack, was assassinated by nationalist sympathizers on November 19th. The British government used this development to strengthen its military hold over Egypt and to impose protections for foreign investors and interests. Carter was able to reinstate himself as the head of the excavation by obtaining a renewal of Lady Carnarvon's concession, but he was forced to accept certain conditions. The Times could not monopolize access to the tomb, and the concession holders officially had to relinquish any claims to the tomb's contents. Although the Egyptian government would have wished to avoid Carter's return, truthfully, he was one of the few individuals, both able and willing, to continue the exhausting and tedious process of removing and documenting Tutankhamun's treasure. The tomb itself was a much smaller structure than most Egyptian rulers' tombs. This was probably due to the relative obscurity of Tutankhamun himself, or perhaps his unexpected death at a young age. The son of Akhenaten, Tutankhamun originally took the name of Tutankhaten. This stemmed from his father, originally Amenhotep IV, changing his name to Akhenaten, the result of the pharaoh radically decreeing a new religion in Egypt, Atenism the worship of the sun as symbolized by the disc known as Aten. This set of beliefs replaced the long-established polytheism of Egyptian culture. Akhenaten also attempted to shift the capital away from Thebes to present-day Amarna, Thebes associated with the Egyptian deity Amun. These changes were controversial, and as soon as Akhenaten died, the gradual restoration of polytheism began. After the brief reign of two successors to Akhenaten, Tutankhamun assumed the throne, probably at the age of nine. As he lived in the 14th century BC, most of what is discussed about his life and reign are theoretical conjecture. Because of his youth, the actual administration of Egypt was handled by an office holder known as a vizier, and during Tutankhamun's reign, two individuals were responsible for the northern and southern regions of the country. To transform the state back to polytheism, the pharaoh changed his name from Tutankhaten to Tutankhamun. Upon his ascendance, he married the teenage Akhenaten, the daughter of his father and his father's official wife, as opposed to the ruler's many mistresses, Nefertiti. Tutankhamun's biological mother has never been identified, but Akhenaten was at the very least his half-sister, this incestuous arrangement not uncommon in ancient Egyptian hierarchy. Despite their youth, the royal couple conceived two children, daughters that were stillborn. Other than his domestic background and restoration of the state religion, most of the remaining analysis of Tutankhamun revolves around his health and death. As his mummy was thoroughly autopsied, x-rayed, CT scanned, and even subjected to DNA analysis, various ailments were posited, including Marfan syndrome, scoliosis, a clubbed foot, a fractured leg, and even malaria that is one of the possible causes of his death between the ages of 18 and 19. A popular theory that circulated for much of the 20th century was that a supposed skull fracture revealed by x-ray indicated death by a blunt force trauma, ultimately disproved and proven to be damage caused by the contemporary removal of the mummy's shroud. 
Unlike the much larger and intricate tombs of other pharaohs, it is believed that the sudden death of Tutankhamun precipitated his burial in a hastily built or even a repository not originally meant for this purpose. The individuals responsible constrained by a religious and spiritual time limitation. After his death, his wife retains a brief high profile as the possible wife of his successor before her subsequent complete disappearance from any recorded history, her fate unknown. Although his legacy was virtually non-existent and the contents of his tomb were modest in comparison to other more illustrious pharaohs, Tutankhamun's sarcophagus alone was potentially the most remarkable find in the history of archaeology. This was probably what motivated Carter to grudgingly accept more onerous conditions to continue his excavation. In 1925, he returned to Egypt, an unfinished business. Most prominent was Tutankhamun's sarcophagus, its lid already opened by a complicated pulley device. Underneath this immensely heavy object was a seven-foot-long gilded coffin case, its upper portion featuring a likeness of the face of Tutankhamun, his arms crossed over his torso, one hand holding a crooked scepter, the other a flail, symbolic ornaments of Egyptian pharaohs. Luckily, this outer shell had handles on the upper portion, which allowed for simple lifting and removal. Underneath was a second coffin, similar to the first, but inlaid with ceramics and semi-precious stones that emphasized the facial features and especially the eyes of the pharaoh. But both of these outermost coffins were made primarily from wood. After Carter determined how to separate the second coffin from the third and last coffin shell, he was confronted by an object similar in design to the first two, but constructed entirely of gold. It weighed over 800 pounds and contained the mummy itself. Inlaid semi-precious materials colorfully delineated the facial features, ceremonial beard, and vulture and cobra festoon crown of Tutankhamun. When Carter opened the lid, he gazed upon the mummy itself, wrapped elaborately in banded cloth. Most remarkable of all was the funeral mask, a kind of helmet that fit over Tutankhamun's head and upper torso, the pharaoh's face and headdress elaborately depicted with colorfully inlaid materials on a base of solid gold. Although the excavators were awestruck by these objects, their impact was dulled somewhat by the presence of congealed embalming fluids that were copiously dumped on the mummy as part of the preservation process. This material inadvertently became an epoxy-like substance that effectively bound the third coffin together with the mummy and mask itself. After removing the entire third coffin and its contents to his nearby workshop and subjecting it to extreme desert heat, this material melted somewhat but still did not allow separation. Although the possibility that the mummy itself might be seriously damaged or destroyed in the process of removing it from its surrounding ornaments, Carter was ultimately left with no choice but to forcibly extract both the mummy and its ceremonial mask that was stuck in place as if encased by cement. The lower body of the king was unwrapped, the surrounding materials so corroded that despite Carter, his chemist Lucas, and a professor of anatomy Douglas Derry's best efforts, these wrappings essentially deteriorated. From head to foot, Tutankhamun was adorned with various decorative items and jewelry. His feet were fitted with golden sandals, his midsection adorned with a golden skirt-like garment, as well as a gilded dagger with an iron blade, still glinting after 3,000 years, and among a few other items in the tomb, the oldest examples of iron ever found in Egypt. 
The arms contained numerous bracelets, the hands elaborately wrapped and also adorned with numerous pieces of jewelry. 143 items were removed from Tutankhamun's body, many from the elaborate wrappings that covered the actual corpse itself, which, although mummified, was quite brittle and decayed. Much of the skeletal remains had to be removed with a hammer and chisel, these items so attached to the outer coffin. The team performing this makeshift autopsy had no choice but to finally use heated knives to separate the head from its golden mask, the last task of the process. Derry's examination indicated that the pharaoh could not have been older than 18. The funeral mask was still stubbornly attached to the third outer coffin. Carter subjected the surfaces of both to extremely hot heat lamps until the anointing fluid started to melt to a molasses-like consistency. Finally, the mask was separated, but this process was so hot that the blue glass-like inlay surrounding the face fell off and had to be reattached. Eventually, Carter rearranged the pieces of Tutankhamun's body, wrapped them in cloth, put them back into the outermost third coffin, and returned this to the tomb's sarcophagus. Instead of the original lid, Carter installed a sheet of glass, allowing visibility of the interior and the coffin itself. From the burial chamber, Carter moved on to the third of the four rooms of Tutankhamun's tomb. This he called the treasury, which also contained many objects designed for use by the pharaoh in the afterlife. Numerous model boats, miniature statues of various Egyptian gods, two chariots, and numerous large adorned boxes containing jewelry were crammed into the small space. Among the most extraordinary items in this room was a large dog-shaped rendition of the Egyptian god Anubis. Sometimes depicted as a man with a jackal-shaped head, in this case, the statue of Anubis is a completely canine-shaped representation of the god, seated on its stomach on a pedestal, painted black with golden highlights. Another large golden box-shaped shrine contained tiny miniatures of Tutankhamun's much larger coffins. These miniatures contained the pharaoh's preserved internal organs. In a nearby inlaid box, also preserved, were two more miniature coffins, which contained two fetuses of stillborn female infants. Genetic testing eventually proved that these two fetuses were the unborn daughters of Tutankhamun, who died childless, putting an end to the Egyptian 18th dynasty. Carter tackled the last of the four rooms known as the Annex in November of 1927. Perhaps by design, perhaps because it was vandalized by grave robbers, this room was the most cluttered and disorganized of the four. It also had a ceiling that was three feet lower than the antechamber. Most of the objects deposited here seemed to be symbolically for daily use in the afterlife, like vessels with wine residue, fruit baskets, and weapons. They also were jammed into the space without much of an overall theme. It took Carter a year to remove and catalog these items. Afterwards, he turned his attention back to the antechamber, which took three years to completely clear. It was not until February of 1932, ten years after the tomb's discovery, that the methodical and painstaking process of emptying Tutankhamun's tomb was officially concluded. For Howard Carter, the discovery of the tomb and its decade-long aftermath was the transcendent accomplishment of his life. Utterly exhausted by both the laborious excavation and contentious relationship with Egyptian officials, Carter never pursued another archaeological venture. 
While he did compose a brief account of the discovery, he was unable to complete the definitive scholarly analysis of Tutankhamun, his tomb, and its contents. Spending his summers in London and his winters at his home in Thebes, Carter's sexuality, like many famous British historical figures, was the topic of speculation. Despite rumors of both an affair with Carnarvon's daughter Evelyn and homosexuality, Carter never married, had no children, and his few close associates described him as a loner who never developed any intimate relationships. While in Thebes, he spent most of his time hanging around the Winter Palace Hotel, more than happy to discuss Tutankhamun's excavation with both visitors and journalists alike. As the Tutankhamun phenomena waned, Carter practically disappeared from public view. He died of Hodgkin's disease in London on March 2, 1939. Howard Carter officially removed 5,398 individual items from Tutankhamun's tomb. These items are on display or stored at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Today, both his detailed note cards concerning these objects and the original negative plates of photographs taken by Harry Burton reside at the Griffith Institute of Egyptology at Oxford. Many of the photographs are accessible via the Internet. Harry Burton was also one of the two executors of Carter's estate, which contained little cash, but at least 18 items that Burton identified in Carter's antiquities collection that could have only come from Tutankhamun's tomb. Burton discreetly presented these to either Egyptian antiquities officials or the Metropolitan Museum, which eventually repatriated the items. Over time, other items have appeared in the Metropolitan, the Louvre, and various other prominent museums that are suspected of emanating from Tutankhamun's tomb. As he was paid nothing by the Egyptian government, behind the scenes, Carter spent a great deal of time serving as a dealer of antiquities to individuals all over the world. It is not unlikely that some of his sales were of items surreptitiously removed from the tomb. Officially, Lord Carnarvon's estate, which litigated mightily for a share of the treasures of Tutankhamun's tomb, ultimately settled for approximately 35,000 pounds paid by the Egyptian government as compensation for the Lord's expenses. Carnarvon was buried on the 5,000-acre grounds of Highclere Castle. His family remained prominent members of the British social scene. His grandson, the seventh Earl of Carnarvon spent over 30 years as Queen Elizabeth's horse racing manager. Nicknamed Porchy from another title of Lord Porchester, his extraordinarily close relationship with the Queen generated speculation that was not diminished by his character's appearance in the recent television series The Crown. When he died suddenly in 2001, the current eighth Lord of Carnarvon inherited both the title and Highclere Castle itself. At the time, this was a mixed blessing, the roof of the castle requiring massive renovation. The Earl decided to display his collection of antiquities as part of an exhibit on the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. While this generated some income, Highclere Castle continued to deteriorate, with collapsed ceilings and extensive water damage prompting the Earl's family to relocate to a smaller house on the grounds. Searching for any avenue for the estimated 12 million pounds required for the estate's basic renovation, Carnarvon agreed to allow filming using the castle as a backdrop for a new television series about an upper-crust British family. Once again, Highclere Castle was the seat of a different kind of international sensation as the mythical Downton Abbey. 
the castle today a major tourist destination that draws throngs of people from all over the world, eventually allowing the current Earl of Carnarvon to return to the home of his illustrious ancestor. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Howard Carter. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, The Discovery of the Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter and A.C. Mace, The Shadow King by Joe Marchant, and The Complete Tutankhamun by Nicholas Reeves. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm -hmm.